um, if you have a Bible and you open it to Revelation, we're continuing a series that we started a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, what we're doing right now is we're looking at the seven letters to seven churches. Uh, Jesus appeared to John on an island in a vision, and um, he his appearance was incredible, um, the way John described the way Jesus looked. And then immediately after appearing to Jesus, appearing to John that way, Jesus says, I want you to write down seven letters to seven churches in Asia. Um, and seven is the number of completeness. So we know that these churches are really meant to, what they're meant to communicate is really his, his words of encouragement and advice to all the churches. Um, and we also know that John was likely a pastor to these seven churches, like in some form. They, saw, they knew who he was. They saw him as a leader. He probably had written things to them in the past and had some connection with these churches because they were sort of in the area. And so this week, we're looking at a letter to the church in Smyrna uh, in chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 8 through 11. So I'm going to put that up on the screen, and then we're going to read through this very short letter to the church in Smyrna, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. In um, Revelation 2, verse 8, we pick up here. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation." Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So of the seven letters, this is the only one that doesn't have any kind of correction to the church. It's really just a letter of encouragement. And what it begins with, uh, besides Jesus describing himself, which we'll get to in a moment, what the significance of that is, is Jesus saying to the church this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich in the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So the church in Smyrna is a church that's obviously dealing with a great amount of trial, of difficulty. They're a church in hard circumstances. And so he's writing this letter to a group of people who are suffering as they seek to live out, like, faithfully the Christian life. So the nature of this persecution they're enduring, uh, he speaks to a little bit. He gives an indication here when he talks about the synagogue. And so to understand what's happening, we have to kind of look at the history of this area and what the church in Smyrna was up against. So they were a part of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was a very large empire. You know, they went, they conquered an area, a group of people, they brought them in, and then they were assimilated them. They're like, you now have to be Roman. But they were doing that with all different kinds of groups of people in very large area. And so the Roman authorities had to figure out how to govern and keep check, keep in check a huge group of diverse people with their own systems of beliefs, their own gods they worshiped and all that stuff, their own ethnic cultures, everything. They had, to, they had to figure out how to keep all of those people part of one empire. And the way that the leaders of, of the Romans uh, decided to do this was by making uh, it so that the emperor themselves was a god who should be worshiped. So that way, you're not just talking about the leader of a government. You're saying to the people, you need to bow down and worship this emperor. Um, they are a deity, 
what this was called was the imperious cult. Um, and basically, it means that amongst all the other gods in Rome that people bowed down and worshiped to, they also had to worship to the emperor. This wasn't a big problem for most people in Rome because most people already worshiped a bunch of gods. They're like, sure, throw another one in, no problem. You know, we've got a bunch, they change all the time, no big deal, add another one, that's great. And so in order to transact business in the Roman Empire, you had to swear some kind of allegiance to um, the emperor um, as God. You had to bow down in some form, uh, indicate that you saw him as God and that you were his servant. If you wanted to be involved in anything social, if you wanted to go to the theater, if you wanted to go to any kind of sporting events, if you wanted to be out in the community in interacting really in most ways with other people, uh, you had to indicate at some point, you had to bow down to the emperor. There was some way to show your allegiance to the emperor as Lord. If you wanted to be a part of Roman society, you had to bow down to the emperor. Not just say, okay, I get it. They're in charge of the government and I'm going to respect that. I'm going to get that. Jesus talks about how we're supposed to submit to governing authorities. We're supposed to let them uh, be over us. No, I'm going to uh, bow down and worship this person as God. Well, that's a problem. If you're one of the religions that believes that there is only one God. An example of a group that believed this was the Jews. They believed for a long time that their God was the only true God. He was only one God. He was the God who always was and always is and always will be. The I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This one true ultimate God who stands outside of everything else and is over all other things. If you believe that then how did you worship this Roman emperor? Well, the, the Roman authorities had taken this into account because they had certain groups like the Jews that were uh, a large group. They, they were fairly peaceful. They didn't make life too hard for the Roman authorities. And so they said to the Jews, they said, uh, we will allow you to worship uh, your God and not bow down to the emperor of Rome will let you sort of abstain from this emperor worship that we have here. And you can still be a part of society for the most part. And, and we'll let you do that because you're a part of this Jewish synagogue. You're a part of this one specific group. And we've kind of come to an agreement on that. You're not doing it because you're trying to make, you're against Rome. We get that. You're doing it because you're trying to worship your God and we want to respect that. So we'll let you do that. It's their way of keeping peace with this huge group, the, the Jewish people. Well, the Christians in the early church were also Jewish. They were coming from the Jewish faith. They uh, believed in the Old Testament. They believed in all the same things that these Jewish people believed, with the exception that they followed the Messiah, Jesus. And so they themselves um, would go to synagogue. They would worship there. And, um, and they would tell the Roman authorities, we're Jewish. Yes, we are. So they would let them abstain from emperor worship, which is good because they could stay faithful to Jesus and still live as a part of the Roman Empire. Well, what had happened was the, uh, the people in charge of the Jewish synagogue in Smyrna had gone to the Roman authorities and said, these Christians are not with us. That was it. They went to them and they said, him and him and her and him and her and him and him. And her. They're not Jewish. They're not part of our synagogue. They're a part of some weird cult and uh, they're not with us. They would sold them out to the Roman authorities. 
Uh, probably because it bothered them that they believed that the Messiah had come. Probably because it bothered them that they believed that the Jewish Pharisees had killed their Messiah, Jesus. Probably because it bothered them that they didn't follow all of the laws or they didn't do things exactly the same way. Probably because it bothered the Pharisees that these Christians had uh, their own sort of pastors and apostles, people that they followed that these Pharisees didn't always agree with. So they sold them out to the Roman emperor, to the Roman Empire, and the result was persecution. The result was um, tribulation, as Jesus says to them. Tribulation is like stormy seas, choppy water, being in the midst of something like that. The literal definition of it is that it's like a weight. It's a burden that you're carrying around instead of just sort of going about your life free. Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna are important here. He says, I know your tribulation. I get it. I, I understand the circumstances you guys are in, which is, which is a good way to start a letter to people who are dealing with persecution, is to say, I understand what you're going through. He says, I understand your tribulation. And he indicates that by saying that it's the cause of the synagogue um, of Satan. He's saying, I get it. I know that these Jewish leaders have sold you guys out. It's not fair. It's not right. And more than even them being behind this, it's Satan himself who's behind this. He says, I know your poverty. Because he, he understands that the result of all of this persecution of, of the Roman leaders being against them was that first and foremost, they could arrest them. They could, uh, they could uh, imprison them. They could ultimately lead them to their deaths. All along the way, simply saying, just deny Jesus. Worship the emperor, bow down to him, and you'll be okay. You'll get out of jail. You can not be killed in this arena full of people that want to see you get killed. You can go back to being a part of the Roman Empire like all the rest of us. On top of that, there was like, um, they found themselves in a, in a situation of poverty because of this you can't trade with other people in business. People don't want to have anything to do with you. So they didn't have the resources that a lot of other people have. They, they don't have any money. They don't have any influence. And he understands this. They're not only hurting, but they're hurting and they're poor. I mean, it's one thing to be in persecution and pain and to have money to maybe be able to take care of yourself more and to buy some independence and to, uh, people can do that and it, and it eases the burden a bit. They didn't have either one. He goes on and he says, I understand, I know the slander that was brought against you. He understands that the nature of what's happening to them, which is what's so hurtful and personal to them, is that the Jewish people, their very people, are turning against them. Well, we're not part of you anymore. We're not part of the Roman Empire because they're making it impossible for us to be part of the Roman Empire. So everyone is against us. They're being slandered. How, how difficult would it be to be a group of people getting together each week saying, let's go be salt and light to the world. Let's show them our love for them and for each other. And then to turn around and realize that they all think things about you that aren't true that they're slandering you behind your back, that they're mischaracterizing you and they're selling you out to your enemies. Jesus says, I know these things. 
It's one thing to suffer and have money. It's another thing to suffer and have no money, but still have respect. Mother Teresa lived a difficult life, lived in poverty, but we all know who she is, right? We have respect for her. The world has respect for her. We will endure a lot of things of these three things. We'll endure a lot of this in order to have one of these things, maybe. You know, I'll endure some suffering if it means money. I'll endure some disrespect if it means money. I'll endure suffering and disrespect if, or, and money and poverty if it means I can have some respect from other people. Maybe I'll do really hard things. I'll find myself in really hard circumstances if it brings me wealth or it brings me respect from others. But to not have all three is a pretty low place to be. And what Jesus says to them is he says, and this is very significant, he says, I know. I know. So Jesus does something in this letter here. This is the first time in a very long time that there's actually blanks that you can fill in for the sermon. So if you're a fill-in-the-blank person, good news, there's blanks on the back of the note sheet and you can go crazy. He makes two promises and he asks them to do something. Those are the, those are the three things I'm going to highlight out of this letter. He makes two promises to them and he asks them to do something. The first promise that he makes to them is this. I am with you in your suffering. How does he make that promise? By beginning this way. He begins with, I know what you're going through. There is no more presumptuous thing that a person can say to someone who's suffering than, I know what you're going through, right? If you've been through something really difficult, you have felt the sting of another person trying to relate to you who can't. The reality is this means so much to us to know that first and foremost, Jesus says to this church, I, in the midst of what's going on, know that I am with you. Remember, he, is the, he stands in the midst of, he said, seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches, saying to them, uh, uh, first and foremost, uh, I, Jesus, am in the presence of each and every one of your churches. He tells the church in Ephesus that, um, that if they're not careful, if they don't get their act together, that they will, he will remove his presence from them. There is no greater gift that we can have as a church than Jesus being present with us. So his encouragement to this church is to remind them, first and foremost, I know what you're going through. I can recount the details of it to you, which he does very briefly. Why do I know? How can I say that to you? Because I'm with you in it. I am walking through this with you. You're not alone. Why does that matter? Because when we are persecuted, when we are suffering, we feel alone. It's one of the most natural things that we feel is we feel isolated in our suffering. We feel alone. Jesus' words to them is not only I'm with you, but I know how you feel I know your pain. Why does he know our pain? How could he possibly know our pain? Because Jesus himself endured such pain. Jesus himself suffered greatly. Jesus himself endured poverty. Jesus came to save people. And the very people that he came to serve and save unjustly tried him and killed him, slandered him. He knows what they're going through and what they're dealing with. 
there is such encouragement to Jesus saying to us, I know and I'm with you. I'm saying to the first service at kind of at the end of the message that when I think back to the times that I have been suffering the most and I've cried out to God, I've wanted him to stop what was happening or I've wanted him to explain to me why it's happening. And instead, in almost every one of those circumstances, God simply says to me, I'm here with you. He will say just enough. He will show me just enough. He will change the circumstances in such a specific way or he will send people to me with that word very clearly that I know that's coming from him. And it's like all of this, I want all of this. I want any of this that I can get. And all he gave me was, I'm here with you. I see you and I hear you. That is supposed to mean something huge. And it does. What he says to them, and this is kind of the, the key here, is he goes on after he tells them, I know you and I, and I get what you're going through and I'm with you in this, is he asks something of them. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer in verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Could you imagine if you were suffering greatly and word came that Jesus had written you a letter? That, that he was circulating these letters to the churches and one of them was for you, the church that is enduring all of this? And you get the letter and you open it up and the first thing it says is, I totally understand what's going on. That would be good. The next thing it says is, it's going to get worse. Like, what you wanted to say is, good news, as you can already tell, things have gotten better. It got better when I told this to John. It already is better. And by the time you're reading these words, you're like, oh, that's why things got better, because Jesus did that for us, and it takes a while for us to get our mail. But instead, they receive a letter, and what does it say to them? But it's going to get worse. And his word to them is this, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Don't fear what we're about to suffer. Well, it probably won't be that bad then, right? Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Here's how it's not that bad. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. 10 days is like the way that we say a couple days, a few days, right? So for a little while, for a little while, you will be tested and you'll deal with really bad tribulation. Be faithful even unto death. Some of you will be put to death, I think he's implying here. And so after the promise that he makes, he asks something of them. He calls them to something. And this is the only thing he calls them to in this whole letter. The only thing he asks of them in this whole letter. The only thing that he asks of them in this whole situation that they are enduring is this. 
be faithful to me no matter what comes. The way he words it is even unto death. And I think even unto death pretty much covers everything, right? Be faithful to me no matter what comes. It's going to get worse. Stay with me. What he told them already was, I'm with you. In case you weren't sure, I've been with you all along. I haven't left your side. Even though you feel alone in this, I'm here in your presence, which is the single greatest gift that we can ever have that we rarely appreciate. Next he says, so you stick with me. All these things that will happen, the goal of them will be very simple. The goal of these things from the enemy will be for you to walk away from me. That's it. That's the goal. The enemy's goal is that you would walk away. Whether it's the Roman emperor, whether it's these Jewish leaders who have totally turned against you and they're like a synagogue of Satan, he says, or whether it's the ones in your own community who choose to walk away from me and you go see them living better lives, which is what will happen and is what does happen. He says to them, all of the enemies that you're fighting It's one enemy, it's the devil, it's Satan, and his goal is simple, for you to walk away from me. It's not even to destroy you, it's for you to walk away from me. How do we know that? Because that's the temptation that you'll continue to have, is to just stop being faithful to Jesus because you can't endure the difficulty anymore. If you were a Christian in Smyrna, then your life was harder way harder because you were following Jesus than it would have been otherwise. Roman authorities, they're telling you life can just go back to normal if you would just abandon these convictions, bow down to our gods. Jewish leaders are telling you you can become a part of our community again. You, just, you can have the respect of the community that you grew up in that was your livelihood, that was your family most likely. If you would just abandon the idea that this guy Jesus, who clearly wasn't the Messiah because we killed him, that just turn from him, turn from this stuff, turn from Jesus to these other things, and this pain will go away. Jesus' words to them are, be faithful to me. Continue following me. Continue walking with me. It seems like the most passive thing we can do. But it's not. And it's in persecution that we recognize that it's the most revolutionary thing that people can do. The heroes of the faith for the first 300 years, the people that kids grew up wanting to be who were Christians for the first 300 years were the martyrs. Not even the apostles, it was the martyrs. Why? Because they were brought into arenas like an NFL stadium. They were brought in in front of crowds and thousands of people. And what did they do? They were given the opportunity to deny their faith to walk away from Jesus. And if not, they'd be burned alive. They'd be ripped apart by animals. They'd be killed by gladiators and all kinds of other things. And right there before all other people, the question is, would they forsake him or would they remain faithful even unto death? One of the most well-known of these is the Bishop Polycarp who would have read John's letter and then 30 years later be arrested by these Roman authorities for these exact reasons and be given opportunity after opportunity to walk away from Jesus. And he doesn't. 
You see, what's so disorienting, I think, about this is that when many of us become believers, begin following Jesus, we do it because it makes our life better right away. We do it because we see it as a way of making our life better. It will give me a community that is better and that is more real and that is more vibrant and more loving than anything I could experience outside of the faith. It will help me clean up my, my life that's become such a mess and, and begin to live my life in a different way. That's good. It helps me. I, I want a Christian family, not a non-Christian family, and it will give me a way to be able to do that. It will give me friendships and relationships that are real and meaningful. It will teach me how to be selfless and a person of substance in a way that matters most. I don't have a lot of money. I wish I did, but this Jesus thing makes it easier to not have a lot of money because there's other things I can live for. There's a lot of things that seem to make our life better about following Jesus initially. But we all ultimately get to this point where we realize things have changed. And now following Jesus isn't something that we're doing because it's making my life today better. It's something I'm doing because Jesus has said, be faithful to me and know that when things are hard, that you can find life in that. Because that's the question, right? Like, why would someone be faithful to Jesus no matter what comes? Why would someone be faithful to him even unto death? We know why, because Jesus indicates it here. He says this to them, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This word, if you translate it, is not the crown that a king wears. It's the crown that an athlete wears when they win. They would be given a crown, a wreath over their head, and they would wear it. This is like medals that we wear when we stand on the podium if we've won an event. And what he's saying is he's saying you'll be given the medals, the crown, the award that goes to the competitor who does the best. Think about this, right? I mean, just think about this. That being a Christian, God Polycarp, for example, a lowly, humble um, pastor of a church in a persecuted group, put him in the middle of an arena in front of the whole city. His moment of fame, his moment of notoriety. And what does he do to compete well? What does he do to win the prize? What does he do to become the champion? He remains faithful to Christ, even unto death, which is what Polycarp would ultimately choose to do. He's saying, compete in this way. Why would someone do that? Because you will receive a crown of life. I don't care about medals. I don't care about wreaths on my head and crowns like that. I care about my life. But what he means when he says the crown of life, he's saying something here that is absolutely fundamental to everything Jesus says about the way life in him works. And it's this. It's the last promise that he makes. In me, death will lead to life. He promises them this. He promises them, I am with you and I know you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your turbulence, your suffering, your persecution. I am with you in that. I promise that. He asks of them, be faithful to me. And then he says to them, and here's why you can be faithful to me even unto death. Because in me, death is going to lead to life. Now, that makes no sense in our minds because we understand it working the other way around. There's life, and life ends in death, right? We're born, we live life, we die. All things that are alive will eventually be 
dead. It doesn't go the other way, but in Jesus, it does. Jesus says, real life, true life, actual life comes after death. And he's not just talking about heaven or eternal life, although that's obviously a huge part of it. He's talking about the basis of the Christian life and following Jesus. Death leads to life. Remember how Jesus opened this letter here. Every one of these letters, he says something about his very nature. And he reveals something about himself to the churches, and it's meant to connect with the situation they're in or the letter that he's writing them. And in this one, he describes himself as this, the first and the last who died and came to life. The first and the last is a reference back to Isaiah 44. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Jesus says to them, before everything that exists, I was existing. After everything that exists, I exist. In the midst of all of this that I have created, I am. I'm bigger than life and death. I'm bigger than your lifespan or everyone else's lifespan. I'm bigger than the Roman Empire. I'm bigger than that Jewish synagogue. And he also describes himself as the one who died and came to life, which means he conquered death itself. I died and came to life. I promise you, I can assure you that what comes after the death that you die is real, true life. Like I said, this is kind of in the nature of... Um, of what it is to live as a Christian and to follow Jesus. He talks about this in Matthew 16 when he's explaining growing to, the, to his disciples. We read this in Matthew 16, and then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So you see, he's not saying here, if you would come after me, here's all the things that I'll give you first. He says, first, you have to let go of things. You have to die willingly. You have to take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The church in Smyrna was dealing with persecution aimed at them because they were followers of Jesus. And by choosing to continue to have faith in Jesus, they were choosing a death. Whether it ended in physical death or whether it was some other kind of death, the choice is to choose to let a part of your life die away for the sake of Jesus. And in that sense, what he's talking about applies to all of the suffering that we endure as believers. When we, one, willingly choose to do things that will not make our life better tomorrow, but will probably make it harder. Why would we do those things? Because from those little deaths come true life. 
And that life, he says, will give us our soul. He um, was also talking to his disciples, and we read about it in John 16. It's one of the only times that, it's one of the times that Jesus is sarcastic, kind of, and I like it, because I just think anywhere you can find sarcasm in the Bible, you got to grab it. And he says this to his disciples. He's just been explaining to them that bad things are about to happen. And the disciples are really proud of themselves, and they're saying, Jesus, we finally get it. We totally get everything you're saying. His disciples said, and now you're speaking plainly and not just using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So they're saying to him, Jesus, oh good, now you're being clear. Why were you being so confusing before? Why were you speaking in parables? Why were you doing all this weird stuff? Now we get it, it's simple. And yeah, we've all talked and we totally believe that you're from God. Jesus says to them, he answers them, do you now believe this is kind of his way of saying, but you don't. Because he says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you'll be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus' words to them are, you think you believe in me, but you don't. Not yet. Why? Because you will have to suffer in order to truly see who I am. And they don't get that. They've suffered little up till this point. And so they want to believe. They want to believe that their faith is real. They want to believe that it's sincere. They want to believe that they're mature. And Jesus is basically saying to them, like, not yet, guys. You're going to have to go through some really hard things. And in that you will recognize something that's going to overwhelm you and it's going to discourage you and it's definitely going to make you want to give up. And what it's going to, what it's going to make you realize is that the world, in this world, you will have tribulation. It will be a reality for you. It will be a part of life. It is unescapable and it is unavoidable. But take heart, says Jesus. I have overcome the world. In me, death leads to greater life. And if we believe that that's true, then we can remain faithful to him no matter what comes, no matter what happens. We can remain faithful to him in the midst of persecution for his name in a world where it is not popular to be a Christian who actually lives out what Jesus says. Or when we suffer, when we endure suffering at the hands of this fallen and broken world, knowing that suffering comes ultimately from the enemy, that as we're enduring that, that we can remain faithful. Why? Because we know that even though this thing I'm dealing with is causing death in my life, if what Jesus says is true, and if I trust him, then that death can lead to life. I've talked to so many people. I've sort of walked with so many people who have suffered, who have been in the midst of suffering, people who have been persecuted for their faith and people who are simply enduring pain in this life that makes no sense, that they don't have answers for. And as I've talked with people and sat with people in these circumstances, I've recognized that the difference between how a person navigates that kind of suffering, that kind of persecution, that kind of turmoil, is not their circumstances. It just isn't. It is the confidence that they have in Jesus. 
and their ability to truly believe and trust that he promises life. There's a, um, a, there was a guy named Horatio Spafford who lived, I believe, in the 1800s. And he um, was a wealthy lawyer um, in Europe. And at one point, he sent his wife and kids across the Atlantic Ocean, not like sending them away like he didn't like them. He sent them because he wanted to give them a new life and he was going with them. He put them on a ship and he sent them across the ocean and their boat sank. And his wife was found on the wreckage, unconscious, and none of his children survived. And so this man received news that his four children had perished. And his wife was alive but unconscious. And on the night that he received that news, he wrote a, he wrote a hymn. And it's the hymn that we know today is It Is Well. And... I want to read you some of the words that he wrote in that hymn as he himself experienced exactly what Jesus is talking about here. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Now, do you see why he uses that language to describe the tumultuous Christian life? Whatever the cost he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray.